Welcome to the Plebeian Power Hour with your hosts, Kim and Tipper. And today we've got a guest speaker, Frank. Thank you. I um, appreciate you inviting me. So we wanted to talk about some things that we had talked about in previous podcasts. So we talked about uh, the Vietnam War in particular and the Cold, the Cold War in general. But then we did a Vietnam War one and we were talking about the draft. And We only know so much. But we did want a first-hand account of somebody who's experienced what it was like to be alive during the scarier parts of the Cold War, but also including the Vietnam War. So to start out, can you give us a basic outline of, like, when you were born and maybe you can be as vague as you want, where you were born and what life was like? Okay, uh, I was born in 1950, and in a small town in uh, northern Arizona, and pretty much grew up in a small community. The town wasn't very big, and uh, the schools that I attended were, you know, normal elementary schools, but not that big. Uh, the high school that I attended was a four-year high school and roughly about 600 students in that uh, school. So we've been doing podcasts on the space race and the Cold War, and those all kind of were your growing up years. So I have a lot of questions that are kind of, That'll hop around a little bit, but um, that's kind of the direction I'm thinking of going. Before I begin, do you have any particular questions that you were going to start out with? Uh, no, not particularly. I think you go ahead and any that you don't get to, I'll ask. Okay. My very first question that I have for you are, what were your memories of the Cold War as a child? Um, being from a small town, there was not a lot of concern uh, emphasized by the community, by uh, government leaders in the small town about the Cold War. What I was aware of is that there were nuclear tests going on in uh, Nevada. And later on in life, I found out uh, that we were considered part of the downwind uh contamination from the uh, atomic testing in Nevada. We were called downwinders. And was this something you found out when you were an adult? Correct. I found out as an adult, and most of us found out as an adult, because at the time the government in its testing uh, did not believe the harm was being, uh, any harm was being done by the tests. One question that I had was, in, say, like elementary school or even your other schooling experience, did they do any sort of, like, nuclear test thing where they have you get under your desk to... Um, no, and we had a few, but because we were in a small town and we were not close to any military uh, targets at all, I don't think the community or the uh, schools were concerned that... It would have an impact. They did talk about it, and they said that should it happen, that you should 
get underneath your desk. But we really didn't have um, alarms that we were testing to make sure we knew exactly what we were doing because we were just not in a strategic place. Because that's actually something that I remember that we did that when I was in elementary school. And they had us get under the desks, and it was really amusing to us that that would mean anything, that getting under the desk might somehow save you from anything during a nuclear attack. But they had us do it. Ours was, I thought ours were earthquake drills. Did you have nuclear attack drills? So at least the kids were calling them that. I don't (laughs) even remember if the adults did, but uh, to the kids it was really amusing to us. And I think that they did call them... We did have earthquake drills as well, but I think we did have a nuclear drill at least once. I always thought it was be if you were like on the edges of stuff, not like direct hit. <laughs> Your those high quality school district desks will save you. <laughs> so I was I was looking at something. So um, the nuclear uh, tests were done. Near Amargosa Valley in La- in Nevada. Correct. And where you lived was like six or seven hours drive away. Like, yes. And that was still downwinders. That was still downwinders because the, uh, those tests would throw it up into the, the atmosphere, atmosphere. And the winds would carry it and, and eventually it would settle back down to earth. And we were in the, that cycle where the wind brought oh. it over. That's fascinating. And I don't know if you are aware, but the the government, many years later, uh, tried to provide some type of compensation for those who had received um, an illness of some kind from from down. I've heard winders. of downwinders, but I haven't heard of much else. And my mother, um, because of the cancer that she had, qualified for. This uh, remuneration from the government for the damage it did, and she received the, um, it was $50,000 that she received from the federal government. Let me uh, clarify that. It wasn't until after she had passed away that the laws came into effect, and so my, my siblings applied, which you were allowed to do, and uh, they compensated us uh, because of my mother. And my oldest brother, Norm, who, is, uh, who was born in 1942, he had a specific cancer that qualified under this law. And he also applied and received the, the compensation that the government was providing for those who, basically, it's a certain type of cancer. Uh, from from the radiation of the testing in Nevada. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, after that very intense conversation, <laughs> my next question is, do you remember Sputnik? Yes, I do remember Sputnik. Uh, the Russians, I guess, were trying to beat us in the race in space. Right. And I do remember reading uh, a little bit about it. Sorry, I don't remember a great deal about it. Do you remember people's feelings about it? Because when we were doing our research on it, 
it was like a great national disgrace according to the written books like America was so humiliated and I'm just wondering if you remember any of that though I do know you were pretty young uh I remember um I remember part of it, or parts of it. I remember uh, President John F. Kennedy uh, was concerned that we were losing the the race in to space, and that's when he made a exerted effort to get NASA to get to the moon before anybody else. But yeah, it was it was in the papers. I think it was even talked about in in our schools and some of our classes. Did you have a TV? Yes, we had a TV. I had a TV from the time I was about six or seven years of age. Uh, black and white, three channels, <laughs> and yes, we we would we would watch things like that. Did you guys ever talk about this kind of thing in school ever? I just I know. The, not, not I don't remember school. Not sometimes. a lot. Uh, not that I recall. No. Mm-hmm. Do you remember hearing things about how they, the Russians, like spent sent up a dog into space? And do you remember any feelings that you guys had about Russia during this Cold War? Yeah, uh, we had concerns about Russia. It was called the USSR. Uh, at that time, and uh, Khrushchev uh, was one of the main leaders of of the USSR at the time, and he made a statement that I can't remember when, what period of time it was, but I thought it was in that period of time that says, we will bury you. That's how he ended a, one of his talks, is that we will bury you. And so, yeah, um, Russia's military might was um discussed occasionally not so much in school but maybe more around the kitchen table as a family i also have a question about you know how aware everyone was or you in particular about first man in space and the first american in space and if the space race was something that you little kids were or i guess by then you're a pretty big kid talked about yeah um I think uh, when JFK um, initiated the uh, efforts by NASA to get a man to the moon, uh, there were a lot of things. I remember um, the first time that uh, one of our aircraft was able to enter into space, and uh, that was on that was on the news. And then there were a, a lot of. Um, rockets that were launched one to circle the earth to see how things were go going and testing and things like that and yeah i remember the first uh flight to the moon which they just circled the moon and then for a couple of times and then returned back to earth that was very significant uh, they did a broadcast on tv for that one did you watch that i think it was like a christmas Eve broadcast, I think. I did. Uh, I watched it. It was it was fascinating at the time because this is a fairly new to to people, and and I was in uh, my teens, and you know, not that I had a 
strong interest in the space race, but you know it was so significant that people were paying attention to it, uh, and especially with televisions now coming into almost every everybody's home. Yes, it was something we paid attention to. Yeah, they mentioned in the you know, when we were doing our research, they said like ninety percent of the Americans watched the moon landing on TV. Do you remember I the moon landing? I was one of those. Were you in school or was this at home or? No, I, well, I think it was in 68, wasn't it? 69. Yeah, 69. I think it actually was 69. Yeah, see, I graduated from high school in, in uh, 68. And you uh, But I don't remember where I was, but I do remember watching it. And what what'd you think? Oh, it was, it was amazing um, to, to see what was, what was transpiring. We knew that they had uh, things on it in theaters or, or motion picture places where they were cutting back and forth because that's a, that's a long delay from the time it leaves the moon till they got, got to the earth. But when he, was it John Glenn, I believe, who stepped down off that ladder and made that famous statement. Uh, Armstrong, I think it was. It was Armstrong, yep. that's correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, one huge step. step one tall, yeah, one small step for man. One, for that's correct. So, Yeah, I watched it. It was uh, exciting. And I just was curious because there's been a bunch of talk, you know, now about like conspiracies that this the moon landing never happened. Was there anything, did anybody have any thoughts that maybe this was not a real... It, it... Tiffer. Tiffer has these beliefs and thoughts. Well, no, <laughs> Just kidding. I know he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, I have plenty, but the moon landing's one that to me is interesting. Other people have it. I don't believe it because it's easily confirmed by other countries, but it still gets floated around, and I can imagine there were no other countries really to confirm anything back then, so I could see it being even easier to believe back then. Oh, yes, and the reason why it was easier to believe is because the news networks, in order to uh, take adequate time uh, to show the viewers what was happening, they had makeup uh, moon landing things in their... Oh. So they got their own studio their moon own landing? studio, yes, with, with these things because they were trying to demonstrate to us, here's what's happening. They couldn't watch everything that was going on at the moon, on the moon, and so they would... So they had to put on a production. That's like, correct. Sh- to show everybody visually. That's correct. And and there were times when they would pull the camera back and you could tell that you were in a uh, state studio of some kind. But then there were the transmissions that would come in from uh, oh. the astronauts on the moon and they would be talking of what was happening, especially as the landing vehicle was coming down. So the audio is there, and there's no video. So they are pretending that they are being the astronauts, but the audio is real in the, some places. Yes, the, the audio coming from the astronauts was real. It sounded just like what 
Armstrong sounded like. You know, nobody questioned that. They questioned, uh, was there really a landing going on? You know, yeah, you can have the astronauts in on it, and they're they're talking, um, things like that. But I'm going to move forward a little bit. My one brother uh, was in the Navy, and he was a helicopter pilot in the Navy. And not on the first moon landing, but like the third moon landing when they brought rocks back. He was one of the helicopters who flew the rocks from the aircraft carrier to land. He knew he had the rocks. Did they ever like show any of the other future landings on the moon? Because I can't think of that in in my research. Um, any videos or any kind of news of that? Part of what I understand is that the excitement after the first moon landing diminished. And so there was not as much, I think if you could look up the stats, there's probably not anywhere close to 90 million people that were watching subsequent moon landings because it was kind of anticlimactic. I believe it because just in the space race stuff in general, there was this big thing about being first. And once the first thing happened, anything similar that happened afterwards barely gets mentioned. So it it does make sense to me. But I knew that about your brother, and I tried to find something, you know, something online, some proof or whatever, but I couldn't find mention of the names of those helicopter pilots. Well, realize that this is like the third trip back from the moon with moon rocks and it had lost its significance yeah i i do think that there was a big drop off in in anything you know once the first thing happened the next things people just didn't seem to care much about unless you could do another first i just have the hardest time thinking that that's just not cool every time like like it's just neat i think and that's a far trip. You know, I, I remember growing up, they had a lot of people that they'd be like, oh, such and such climbed Everest. Such and such climbed Everest. And I'm like, such and such went to the moon. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, you don't say such and such climbed Everest because now like hundreds of people are doing it all the time and nobody cares. But I do <laughs> think that the next time somebody goes to the moon, because nobody's been there since, what, 72 or 73, I forgot which year. I think it'll be a big thing again because nobody in our you know generation has seen it. So I think it'll be big again, maybe once. Well, they'll also be able to record it in a bigger fashion now. But they have six countries slated to send people to the moon this year. So we'll see what we see. That'll be really interesting. Um, I have a question, a couple questions. And switching it to wars, uh, you were born in 1950. And in 1950, you're kind of coming out, the world is coming out of World War II, like five years out of World War II. And the Korean War was 50 to 53. So my question is about the grown-ups that you grew up with and what the adults were like. Um, because in my mind, I imagine... Everyone was really strict authoritarian parents. And I just kind of wonder if what kind of effect maybe if you saw one 
that having war parents was like. Does that make sense? Um, maybe no. I might address it a little more. I <laughs> don't quite understand yet. Did you notice any effects of war on the grown-ups? Were people afraid to talk about war? Were people really strict? Were What were the grown-ups like? Because they had just been coming out of war as you are... I mean, they're 10 years out of war as you're a little boy. And then even less with the Korean War. Um, and that's something I think is going to be interesting to talk about when we get to Vietnam. But World War II was very successful. And everybody was overjoyed with the war ending and the return of the uh, soldiers from the battlefield. And uh, it was a momentous occasion. And so my parents um, would talk occasionally. My dad lost two brothers in, in World War II. And knew people that uh, were fighting or had fought in, in the Korean War. And it was not a negative issue. It was a positive issue to talk about it, of what we had accomplished in bringing freedom, if you will, to um, a lot of people. So it was not uh, looked at as a down uh, situation, but more as a positive situation because of the good that came from from being successful, if you will. Um, so w there's a couple things I want to talk about, but I suppose I want to transition first and then go back to something else um, about how that contrasted with Vietnam. I want to kind of Vietnam's a big one, so I, I kind of come into it a little interestingly, because how old were you when Vietnam started becoming a big issue? I was in high school um, in 1965, 66. The escalation was, if I recall correctly, happening uh, in Vietnam, but leading up to in 68 when I was 18 years of age, it was significant. There was a lot of military activity going on in Vietnam in 67, 68, 69. Yeah, I think those were kind of the biggest years. But what do you remember uh, about, like, the draft? So I think they... What I read said the draft was kind of re-implemented in, in like 1962, and it might have even been ongoing before that. Uh, but what do you recall with the draft? Yeah, the draft has been in on and off in uh, the history of the U.S. for a long time. But what was happening as the Vietnam War was escalating, that the draft became more significant, that... Uh, when you turned 18 years of age, you were required to register with the draft. And once you registered with the draft, um, you were required to 
well, mainly you or whatever, like a university or other institutions, to keep in contact with the draft because you had different deferrals that could postpone your uh, being drafted. And I, I brought a little list here of some of the ones. And they're Roman numeral 1A. So we just called them 1A instead of Roman numeral 1, but they're all Roman numerals with an alphabet character behind them. 1A, re uh, registrant is available for military service. And that's what you were assigned the moment you registered for the draft. But it was easily to get a deferment. For example, um, a 1S was a student deferred deferral by law until graduation from high school or attainment of the age of 20 or until end of the academic year at the college or university. So as long as you were a full-time student seeking a bachelor's degree in the universities or colleges, you could get this 1S deferment. Okay, but the moment you graduated from that, uh, then that deferment stopped and unless you got a different deferment. I was going to say I'm like do you get it then go get your masters <laughs> it was like an explosion of PhDs yeah see masters were were not as prominent at that time as they are today I mean it seems like you almost have to get a master's degree when you go to college that a bachelor just doesn't do it so um, I'm not sure but I don't believe a master's degree, depending on the area, because there's deferments if you were like in the medical profession, or there are deferments if you were a farmer. You got to have the food. So if you were uh, working on a farm, let's say your parents owned a farm or whatever, and that was the livelihood, yeah, then you could get a deferment because uh, of your situation. I know they did that in World War One with coal miners, and coal miners were were that was part of the strategy of winning the war. Was we need this energy, we need the coal. So the coal miners were kind of fighting the war at home by mining the coal, and so they didn't get drafted and they didn't get sent to war because they needed them. So I imagine it's similar with like farmers: is you don't want to lose that, you need that, so that's kind of an automatic deferral, right? So, is there more you want to say? Because I'm happy to hear more. Yes, there's some other deferments. Uh, there's a deferment called a um, 1W, and that is if you were a conscientious objector. Oh. That, that if you didn't believe in war, then if... And there were some guidelines you had to go through. I can only imagine what that would be right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you could get a deferral that you could still be drafted, but not see service uh, that would require you to, to shoot fight. somebody. Yeah. So you, maybe you'd be like a coder or something. Yeah. Uh, realize that in any war that you have those who are on the front line, we'll call it the front line, but they need significant support, uh, food, ammo, 
communications, medical, uh, many other things. And so there's been uh, comments that six out of every seven uh, soldiers that went to Vietnam never saw conflict because they were in the support aspect of supporting those who were on the front line. Did you know anybody on the front line? Yes, I did. Uh, I had another brother who got drafted into the Army, and he served in Vietnam from late 68 to late 69, and he was in the Macon Delta area during the Tet Offensive. And But luckily he was in the southern part of the conflict, and there was not as much uh, enemy resistance in the southern part of, of the conflict as there were in the northern part. If you look at the casualties that uh, U.S. soldiers incurred, most of them were in the northern part of the conflict. He was in the south part. He did see action. Uh, that he was that affected him, if you will, and uh, he was concerned. Also had a very close friend, if you remember Mike, there at uh, our hometown. He same age as me. He he fought in the uh, he fought in the war and and uh, Vietnam and had uh, stories, but. Most of the soldiers that fought in the uh, in Vietnam were not that up to talking about it because it was not considered a um, positive aspect to America. It was a negative aspect. You know, we didn't accomplish anything while we were there. Matter of fact, the communists took over when we left, and uh, so. The years we spent there, the lives that were lost, didn't accomplish anything that the other wars that the U.S. had experienced uh, had accomplished. Is that what public opinion was? That's correct. So were they upset at the soldiers? They took it out on the soldiers because they were visible. Uh, and so... That's crazy. Yes, and there were many veterans of Vietnam that I've chatted with over the years that they said, yeah, we, we just weren't. They were drafted. They weren't. They weren't. There were no parades. There were no, oh, no. Uh, honors being bestowed upon the soldiers that returned from Vietnam. It was oh, basically no. almost swept under the rug because it, it was a negative thing. it didn't turn out thing. as well as they wanted. Yes. That makes me sad. Like, I, especially, especially because there was a draft, but even in any war, like, you don't, I mean, blame the higher up people. Like, these, these people are just following orders. That's Yeah, I think with a lot of the modern stuff, when people are saying, you know, support the troops, this is kind of the idea is, you know, even, you know, we, we go into Iraq and a lot of people say, we never should have gone to Iraq. And people are saying, well, support the troops. Because they're not the ones making the decisions. You know, there's 
psychological effects and yeah i mean they're talking about it right now i think it was even in like the state of the union like the number of like veteran suicides and stuff like that the the effects number one i think even if you win the effects of going to war have got to be really tough but when you come back and your own country's kind of mad at you for something that you had nothing you know no say in I can see this support the troops mentality. A lot of people really dislike it because they dislike the war. But they're to me they're they're barking at the wrong you know tree. They it, they should be yelling at the people who you know went to war or or who took these people to war, not the people who kind of were forced to or are kind of dragged along by policy. Yeah, I I I can't even believe it that that's where the anger went to. I mean, I know that some things happened that were very embarrassing to have happened. I know that there were some things that people deserved to not be commended on that happened over there. But as a whole, like, it, it is really sad. I hope that we've learned from that. Well, remember, and you talked about it, I think, in one of your podcasts about the, the uh, riots and protests. Oh, that were going on. Oh, I was actually, that's one of my questions down here where I'm just not in any order. Like, <laughs> what what were those like? Um, there, there are two parts I wanted to address on what they were like. Just imagine that you're a veteran coming back from Vietnam and realize the war went on for many, many years, and so veterans were coming back. And what were they being faced with? They were being faced with these protests about how we shouldn't be there, what we're doing is wrong. And so here you spent, you know, a year over there. Usually that was the standard uh, period of service for somebody drafted. If you were joined the Army, you might stay longer than a year. But you're coming back. I remember when my brother came back in, in December of 69, uh, there were still protests going on. And that was things that were in the news. That's what was being carried by the main media is all these protests. And so he so felt it was bad. disheartening to the soldiers. Yes. I had always in my mind thought it was people wanting their soldiers to come home. I didn't realize that it would seem disheartening to them so i don't know like all the facts but i know there's stories of people coming back and people calling them baby killers and spitting on soldiers who were coming back because they're hearing stories of things that had happened over there and then they're attributing that to anybody who went over there and that's that, and that's why a lot of veterans when they came back they basically hung up their uniforms they there was no parades, like I said. There was no recognition. They basically walked away from anything associated with that, that their military service because it was looked upon so negatively by so many people in this country. And so they, they didn't want to say, hey, I, I served proudly. I did my duty uh, over there. I did what I was commanded to do and things like that because everyone thought it was so so ugly it was ugly it was a really hard place to have a war um with new techniques that weren't real techniques and 
when we did our research on it, we learned that the time when America and its allies shone is when they were in the cities. But as soon as they left the cities, they're in the jungles, and there's there was no way they could approach things in a way that they were taught, I suppose, or could adjust to. And it was it was a really hard place to have a war. Well, you know, one of the things that we did mention is the way that they're getting they're getting attacked by essentially civilians. And they're getting attacked in ways that aren't conventional warfare, so booby traps and and things like that. The, the I I can imagine one of the things that I always thought with with war is they talk about like atrocities and stuff like that that happen, and it's weird that they can talk about you know the the killing of however many people through conventional war is fine, but then there's like a line that you cross that somehow becomes not fine and i don't know how a soldier is supposed to deal with any of that you know when they're just getting shot at and booby traps and you know whatever else but yeah i think that just the whole concept would just be hard anyway yeah and and realize that the north vietnamese could infiltrate into south vietnam and look like a civilian they didn't have uniforms uh, the north vietnamese didn't have uniform uniform there's also the Viet Cong so mm-hmm. the Viet Cong were southern Vietnamese people and they've lived there and knew the territory and were civilians they were literal civilians from South Vietnam well and they they literally armed their children That's... they literally armed mm. their children they literally armed their women and maybe of course not the babies but when it came to kids they have tons of photos of their kids in their little outfits with their little guns and they just tell them to shoot like what do you do like it 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 is tough because you walk into a village and you don't know are you talking to an enemy or are you talking to a civilian and is that civilian under pressure to to adhere to what the enemy is saying and things like that so uh it was just a really ugly war and my brother who didn't talk a lot about the war but he told me a few stories uh, that served in vietnam he said when he first got there excuse me he was assigned a patrol and it was a kind of a night patrol and he says that the countryside that he served in was fairly flat. There were rolling hills, but there were um, trees, forest uh, areas, but there were a lot of open space. And so they knew through either some type of surveillance that they had seen Viet Cong go into this forest uh, growth area. And so they would go in. And what would happen, you know, I don't know how, how big these forest areas are, but I'm guessing they're 5, 10, 15 acres uh, big. And so they would go in, and the Viet Cong would drive out the other side, <clears throat> run out the other side. And after the U.S. soldiers had done their patrol, they'd turn around and go back to their base, and uh, the Viet Cong would come right back in. He says... We, we didn't accomplish anything 
because there was no front line. And they basically... Yeah, that was another thing when doing the research is that there were a lot of comments from soldiers saying, you know, we spent all this time and effort and we took the, you know, we took the hill that you told us to take and then we walked away from the hill the next day. And, you know, they, they just walked right back in. We didn't, we didn't make any progress. We didn't, you know, win. We're just out there dying essentially for, you know, not even territory. And during the rainy season, the wet season, you were walking in water uh, most of the times and, and you would go through these uh, rice paddy fields and they, they would booby trap them you had to be careful it because if you remember how a rice paddy works is it's uh, surrounded by kind of a, a little dike so when they flood it the water stays there and so you have these little uh, pieces of ground that surround the, the, the rice paddies, and that's normally where people walk. Well, they wouldn't walk there because that's where you, the booby traps were. And so they would walk into the rice fields to get to where they were going. And that's why some of the pictures you see is that they're waist high in, in water because they didn't want to walk where it was dry. That's where the booby traps were. That's interesting. And I, I saw some pictures of they they have a museum where they have these uh, Vietnamese booby traps that they showed there's a whole bunch of different booby traps and a lot of them are pretty primitive i know they did use explosives on some but a lot of them were just a hole with you know spikes or rolling you know logs that have spikes on them so your leg goes down and gets spikes in it and then you can't get it out without ripping yourself to shreds and those were extremely common because anybody could make them you know so the civilians would make them and you can't track down who you know who did any of it so it was very common for these to be out and i didn't know about the rice paddy you know thing that's really interesting is that yeah there's probably these set paths that were probably more common and would have been better to walk on if they weren't booby trapped so i know that you have an interesting story with your family about being drafted, and I'd like to hear more about that as well as your dad's response. Okay. Uh, I have three older brothers and two younger sisters, but all four of us uh, sons of my father were drafted. My oldest brother, um, when he finished his... um, degree and graduated, he automatically got uh, reclassified to 1A, which means he was available for the draft. And he knew he was, and it wasn't that he was necessarily against the war, but, you know, people just didn't want to go. The majority of the people didn't want to fight, but a lot of them did their duty, and, and, and they got drafted and they fought. Well, my oldest brother, when he got classified 1A, he was able to get a uh, deferment because he had to do some um, field work. He was in geology. He had to go out on the field, so they gave him a 120-day deferment. Well, uh, towards the end of the 120-day deferment, he realized that 
this was what was going to happen. And so he went to talk to the the uh, Navy. He went and talked to the Air Force. He went and talked to the uh, Arizona National Guard. But there were so many people trying to get away from the draft that they weren't looking for people. The Navy, the Air Force, I mean, maybe some people in the officer's program, uh, some specialized uh, people that they may need they were looking for, but my brother was told that <clears throat> in the Navy, he says, we're drafting, not drafting, but we're accepting only 30 applicants a year. And so as hard as he tried to find a different uh, arm of the military to serve in, and that's one of the coding things too. If, if you signed up for uh, the military, then that gave you a deferral until you were in the military, and then that kept you, uh, it gave you another deferral. So there was a lot of deferrals. So he finally, <clears throat> seeing that it was coming to an end, and he had met a, a girl that he was interested in, <laughs> he uh, kind of emphasized the importance of marriage. They got married. <laughs> she got pregnant really quick, and that's a deferral. And they're still married, so it worked out. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And my second brother... Uh, he graduated from school, and the same thing. He got reclassified as to 1A, and uh, he was trying to decide what to do, and he was talking to a recruiter on campus, and they said, well, just come over and, and uh, fill out some paperwork. Uh, not that you're signing up to join the Navy, but, you know, this paperwork will give you a 120-day deferral. So he did, because he was thinking that, and I think you talked a little bit about that in your uh, podcast, is that there were peace talks going on. He thought it was going to end. And so, yeah, give me 120 days. Well, as he got towards the end of that 120 days, he got another letter saying, hey, you know, uh, you're eligible for the draft. And so he went and talked to a, a Navy recruiter again, and they said, well, we're looking for pilots. And and he said, well, okay, uh, come over and take a physical and let's see. We'll give you another 120-day deferral. So he did. He went and took the physical and got another 120-day deferral. And he's already married. This is the most interesting thing. He was already married. And uh, at the end of that 120 days, he knew he was going to be drafted. So he... Went to the Navy again and said, hey, you know, I want to be an officer. I've got some background in, in uh, being a pilot. He said, well, come over and we're going to send you to uh, California somewhere. Take a test, see if you're, what your knowledge is and things like that. And he did. And they said, well, you passed. So he signed up. And, and he did serve over there, right? Well, yes, but he was he was in the Navy, and he was a helicopter pilot on an aircraft carrier. And, of course, the aircraft carriers are offshore. And the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, they didn't have any type of a military ability against the Navy offshore. And my brother 
uh, in, being a helicopter pilot, was in the rescue program, and he would go after pilots who had been shot down. And he says it was always very fearful if a pilot got shot down over land. He says the majority of those pilots would do anything they could to get their plane to go down over the ocean because they knew they were safe. But if they went down on land, it was questionable about whether they would make it out. And I think like prisoners of war were not treated well maybe in any war, but in particular I think in, in Vietnam that was a very scary thing and I don't know if like all the soldiers knew it at the time but looking back like it's pretty apparent you would never want to be captured well and also if you look at those who were captured they were basically officers the Viet Cong didn't care about the right? lower levels so you don't get captured if you're not an officer that, that's correct you that was basically it for yeah. you and mm-hmm. and uh, so they would always try because they were officers who flew the who flew the jets, the bombing runs, the other things that they would, would do. And so he had three or four occasions. He said that he had to go onto land to try and rescue a a downed pilot. Uh, he said he was successful on on all four occasions and was able to get them back to the aircraft carrier. And so. And that's what, this was Navy. It wasn't Army Air Force or the regular Air Force because they're on land, and they had different uh, helicopter uh, rescue people. His was basically Navy. Mm-hmm. So you keep referencing, and I just want to be sure because I feel like I know this, but I'm not sure. You keep referencing that your brothers would rather be would rather enlist than be drafted. So. Can you tell us a little bit about why? Um, <clears throat> the war was not a popular war. Um, I think most people could see that, hey, we're not accomplishing anything over there. We've been over there for years, and still nothing's being uh, accomplished. So they believed in the country. I think that was taught to them by my dad. He was very patriotic. And so they were willing to be of help uh, in this conflict, but not all that interested in being on the front line, if you will, because of the... Yeah, the, I don't know. I, I assume it was general knowledge at the time, but looking back, like the, the people who get drafted are essentially taking the worst role. So you, you do end up, on the front lines versus the people who sign up and they get the more, I don't know, cushy roles. You know, you're, you're a lot safer, I think, if you're part of the, in you know, if you enlist versus being drafted. So did your dad have any kind of military experience or did he just have his brothers? My dad joined the uh, Navy in 1943 and went to officer school back in Virginia. <clears throat> and he uh, was there for, it was the latter part of 43 when he, well, I guess the middle part of 43 when he joined. And he was into 44 when he finished up. Well, at, in 1944, the end of the war was visible. And so he was never uh, stationed overseas. 
uh, served in the, he was on an aircraft carrier. He was part of the CBs. You may have heard of that. Um, but he was an officer, but never got assigned anywhere outside the United States. But he did lose two brothers and an uncle. So going back to kind of the draft, one of the things that we mentioned is that your dad wrote a letter to LBJ. Was that draft related you know what was what was the first off is that a true story and tell us i guess what caused that letter to be written if it's true <clears throat> it is a true story and basically the cause is like i say there were i had three older brothers and myself uh all of us were drafted all four of us now we're from a small town and when you're from a small town you know people the people on the draft board in your town, uh, other people who are eligible uh, for the draft. And it didn't seem like it was equitable from my dad's opinion that all so, four of his sons. So your draft board decided who in your city went? They had influence, okay? Then you weren't, they didn't like you guys. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Could be. I didn't know that. I thought it was truly just like a numbers game. I didn't oh, no. realize there were people involved. Because there are so many various ways of getting the deferment yeah. uh, from, from the draft that people who work for the draft board are well aware of these various avenues that you can pursue to get a deferment. Uh-huh. And my dad felt like that was not... They were using it to their favor. Yes. And that was the detriment of other people. Yes. And so he went down to the board quite adamantly and was not happy with them. Uh, when I got my draft notice, I was the last one to uh, the four to get the draft notice. And that's when he decided he was going to write... Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, and he made some threatening remarks to to President Johnson in the letter. I don't know who saw the letter, if it ever <laughs> went anywhere. If you know anything about LBJ, though, you have to threaten him big. <laughs> and and so, yes, he, he did. I We never heard any response, you know, uh, from the government or any kind uh, of reaction associated with that letter so i'm guessing it probably never got to the eyes of people who... i would like to think it did though that's i would like to think that lyndon b johnson checked out that letter i'd like to think that it did and to me also you know as far as any sort of memorabilia that would be the only that would be what i would want handed down to me is the letter <laughs> like that that letter just makes me happy because i really like the idea of you're allowed to question and you're allowed, you know, your government has just as much responsibility to be a good government as you do to be a good citizen. And so I think it's fair to to say things. And I don't know how threatening it was because my the way I recall it is he basically just said, you know, you you should go hang yourself from the tree in front of the White House to make the world a better place, sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> and, and so one last thing is when I got drafted and went down to take my physical down in in Phoenix area. First of all, it's 
I I don't want to call it a joke, but it's not a very significant physical. <laughs> I was there I was there with probably 40 other men who showed up uh at 6:30 in the morning. They have you fill out a paperwork listing all the various any illnesses or scars or issues that you may have. They they ask is do you have cancer in your family? Uh things like that. And then they take you in and you're just walking around in your skivvies. <laughs> and uh let me just tell you a little bit of what it was like so you can kinda of get a understanding uh-huh. it's not that significant. So we're lined up there and the instructor says, Okay, I want you to we're standing up. He says, I want you to raise your right foot up about four inches from the floor in front of you, your leg straight out with about four inches above the floor, and I want you to twist your foot, move your ankle in a circle. Okay, now do the other one. Okay, and then do the... Uh, your, 1A. <laughs> do, your, do your arms and see if they raise them above your head and... and uh, Things like that. And then, they, of course, they do the old cough uh, thing that <laughs> men go through and, and uh, things like that. In front that. of everybody? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. This is... It's you, war time. You should have been... You should have seen some of the military barracks. No. <laughs> the bathrooms were like eight or ten toilets no. With, with no... With, with no stalls? No stalls. And... But, like, not in the room with the bed, though, right? No, no, you had a separate, separate room. room. <sighs> we need some new rules for the Geneva Convention. <laughs> that, that just seems wrong to me. There should always be stalls <laughs> in all the bathrooms. So It's war, darn it. And, and uh, so <laughs> after, after my physical, after the, that so-called physical, I get dressed and... and uh, it's about lunchtime, and you, as you leave, you meet with a, a individual, a military guy, and they are looking at the thing you filled out earlier. And I do have some noticeable scars, especially on my right hand, especially on my trigger finger on my right hand. And... Uh, he said, well, can I see it? And I said, yeah, I, sh- I showed it to him. And he says, can you make a fist? And I said, well, kind of. And so I made a fist, but my index finger won't close all the way. And so my fist is not really closed fist. And uh, So what does that label you as? So he, he says, well, it doesn't look like you can fire a weapon because it... Uh, I usually fire with my second finger. Uh-huh. That puts my first finger where those shells are being ejected. Uh-huh. I never shot a gun that had the shells being ejected like you do with the, the, the military. military ones. And so he said, well, okay, you don't have to come back this afternoon. Now, this afternoon one was a psychiatric test. I oh. wanted to see if you were psychiatric. <laughs> Uh, Did they give you one on the way back? <laughs> and so they classified me as 1Y. Uh, and 1Y basically says I could only be drafted in time of national emergency. So as if 
like if someone's coming on our land. That's correct. If we're yeah. being attacked, they could they could draft me. Of course, that never happened. And uh, and I still think you fit into that category today. Well, I think that you have to be over the age of eighty. I thought it was, or, thought it was sixty-five. I thought it was too. seventy-five or eighty. No, I. I you just, wait. Okay. If it's a problem, I bet they'll push it to eighty. We'll we'll, we'll see, but if they have to push it to eighty, you already lost. <laughs> yeah. Let's say they did away with the the draft. It's now my understanding a voluntary voluntary army that it they, is right now. Yeah. They have enough people volunteering that they are able mm -hmm. to meet the needs. When the war ended, the draft ended, and I do believe that was the last draft that America has had. However, if they need one, they can pop yeah. it right back up. And I don't know if you were aware of the uh, drawing that they did in the, the uh, early 70s, where they basically... You drew a number to determine where you were eligible for the for if you were eligible for the draft, then you had a number system, and if you were number one, you were the first one on the list if you were eligible no. for a draft. So I had already taken my physical, had already been uh, graded one Y out to the edges, <laughs> and so yeah, and so then they had that drawing. Well, my they do it by birthday. Pull a birthday date out like June 2nd. And if they pulled you out first, you were number one. So wow. anybody born on, and I don't know, that it wasn't, it wasn't June 2nd, but I don't know what the date was. Then you were looked at first if you were eligible for the draft. And that's how they tried to make it fair. Yes. And then then the next draft may be October 30th or something like, or the next pick. Well, I was, my birth date was 253. Ah. So uh, that was not a worry at all, <laughs> but I was happened to be in an apartment complex with other uh, kids my age, and the first number drew, drawn was a friend of mine across the hall, and I heard him yell because he was his birthday was number one, and uh, but the war was almost coming to an end, so it, it didn't. I think they did didn't get very far up that list before things ended. That's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to hear some of this stuff for real because you look into it, and especially when you are looking back, because I had heard the number thing, and I didn't know that that was 70s. I just thought that's the way that it was, nope. is that it was always a number thing. And so I, I didn't know that that was a later version of the draft. So I just, I'm the feelings person, and I just want to know what kind of feeling you and your friends, like, I guess I just, right now, I would say, like, during the pandemic and things like that, there was a whole feeling in the air of anger and about, and stress and fear, and I'm just wondering what kind of feelings you would use to describe that time. Uh, during the Vietnam conflict? Well, like specifically you and your friends when it's draft time. Um, it was mixed. I I had high school friends because um, we were that we were that age. And and if you graduated from high school and didn't go to any 
additional education, you were 1A, you were right right there. And uh, so I had uh, several friends who, who uh, got drafted. Some of them were excited about it. They wanted to go and fight. And there were some who said, well, okay, you know. And I even had a, one friend who said, no, I'm going to Canada. Uh, did he? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> he did. And, uh, you know, lived there until the war was over. And then he sought uh, citizenship, not necessarily citizenship, but being able to come back into the country without any consequence. And eventually he was able to because it was. Because he was a dodger, a draft dodger. He was a draft dodger. Wow. You know, I have to be honest. I know I would be super mad at people who did that. I also think it would cross my mind for myself. That's <laughs> so uh, a tough one. I'll tell you one last story. Uh, I had a very good friend who, when we graduated from high school, after about a year after high school, uh, he got drafted. And we were t chatting, and he says, hey, Frank, you should join with me. They have a, a thing where if your friend comes in there, they'll stick you with the same unit. Oh, that's actually not a bad selling point. So he says, hey, we can go in together, and and uh, it'll be better for us, you know, because they've got this policy that if a friend comes in, you'll be assigned to the same unit. And I said, oh, I'm just not, I'm not sure that I want to do that. He says, well, think on it. So he went to basic, came back, eight, I think it's three months that you're in basic uh, without able to get any leave. And so when he was able to get leave, he came back, and I saw him again, and we chatted, and he says, hey, you can still come in, and they'll still put us in the same unit after your basic training. And I says, well, how was it? Oh, it's great. He He was... <laughs> He was so thrilled. And, and, of course, that's what basic camp is for. Yeah, well, some people really mesh in it, too. Some people, it's their thing. So he was very excited about it and wanted me to still come in. And I said, no, I don't think so. And uh, so he went off to Vietnam. And uh, after his service there of a year, he came back and, and he was not the same man. He he had changed a lot. The war had had a very negative impact on him. And, and so I was chatting with him, and I says, you think I should have signed up and gone with you? And he says, no, that's the smartest thing you have ever done. It was terrible. It was ugly. And he got he was mentally... Trauma does mean things to your brain. Yeah, and he he ended up in prison because of that trauma. And, uh, you know, he got out after like 20, 25 years. But, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, you know, you saw a lot of ugliness in uh, some of the veterans. Others were able to handle it as long as they didn't talk about it. My, my brother who fought over there didn't want to talk about it. But it just brought up memories that were not something he wanted to think about. And so it was mixed, it, it, uh, how people felt about it. And 
<clears throat> you know, there's a lot more stories of people I knew that had come back from Vietnam and the struggles they had getting back into regular society because of it. And did, did you ever get any, like, letters from your brothers while they were out serving in Vietnam, or did was there basically no communication? Uh, my parents got letters. I, I didn't. Um, my brother, who was in the Army, um, occasionally wrote home to his parents, and he didn't want his parents to be bothered so much by what he was going through, so it was pretty plain, the letters. Now, my other brother who was on the aircraft carrier, his were not all that um, critical by way of, of how he felt about the war because he didn't get involved in it very much. That's so interesting just hearing all this stuff, but I think that's about it unless you've got anything. Did you, either of you have any last thing you wanted to bring up? I do, but it's kind of hard to shuffle topics after that. Just because we have you here today, I am just wondering, rewinding before Vietnam um, or during, um, there were several key things that happened Cold War-wise, like the USSR, USSR's Sarbamba, um, the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the JFK assassination. And I'm just wondering, as a final wrap-up, if you have any kind of memories of those things that you feel like would be important to share. Well, yes. Um, the feeling, feeling was amongst, I say, the general public when the Bay of Pigs incident was happening uh, or the missile crisis uh, issue. My dad... Uh, built what you would call a bomb shelter yeah. in the backyard. Uh, it was not all that quality of a That's bomb better, shelter. Better than those school district desks. <laughs> but uh, I remember that we used to kind of go down in it and play around in, in it. Uh, it was never really used for anything significant. My dad just put a, basically a wooden door over the top of, he put a roof on it with a wooden door, so you had to lift this wooden door up, and there was no stairs, you kind of had to climb down into, oh, no. it was about. And how'd your mom feel about that? <laughs> um, she she thought, well, okay, I guess it's better than nothing, and, but, you know, it really, really wasn't that significant significant so and other people you you would see advertisements about containers that you would bury in the ground that you would yeah, live in they have some even sold today oh yeah even today so the general public probably they were they were concerned about the missile crisis and when it ended there, there was a relief i think uh in the country that the conflict had been adverted. I just think that that's so fascinating. Well, we want to thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Sure. Yep, thank you. Thank you. And I think that'll wrap it up. So, see you later. Bye.